The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured and may not reflect those of Forsyth Bar Limited or Forsyth Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Forsyth Bar or Forsyth Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Doing Business in China series. I'm David Milhouse. I'm head of research at Forsyth Bar Asia. And generally, as you know, we like to speak to industry leaders who are doing business in a specific field in China. And today, it's my pleasure to introduce Song Gao to us. Now, Song is a very good friend of mine. We've been doing business together for quite a few years. And Song runs a macro consulting company called PRC Macro. And whenever, basically, we have a question on China, Song is always the first person that I call. So Song, welcome and thank you for your time. Sure. Hey, I'm very happy to join you uh, for for this uh, exciting uh, conversation. And, uh, you know, I'll certainly will try our best to uh, to help you chart the path for Chinese reform going forward. Fantastic. I guess, could we start with politics? Because it's an important period at the moment. We're coming up to the 19th Party Congress, which is a very significant event. So perhaps you can outline for listeners what the significance of the Party Congress is in China. It's obviously a once in every five year event. And what your expectations for the Congress are and what we should be looking out for. This meeting is is significant because it's the final step for President Xi's power consolidation. Regardless of what resolutions the party may produce at the Congress, it's all just skin deep. What's really essential here is absolute pledge of loyalty from party members at all levels to, to President Xi. That's what she wants from this uh, party Congress. This is critical for the efficacy of uh, Xi's policy transmission during his second term. Remember, what really has worried Chinese leadership, especially President Xi in the past, is not really bad policy design, but really is increased leverage from local government, SOEs, and ministries against the central government. So therefore, for President Xi, the most important significance of this party congress is to recentralize power. This party congress is supposed to put an end to all this political risk in the past that presidency has experienced. Therefore, personnel reshuffle of a standing committee and policy bureau are the key stories that we will be following because it shows how much control presidency would have over his uh, Congress during his second term. Our expectation, well, at this point, is that he cannot become a monarchy, but he should be able to secure a majority at a standing committee and policy bureau. More importantly, put his own people at key provincial and ministry posts. That also makes the upcoming People's Congress in March a little bit much more important event to watch, where we think she is supposed to strengthen his control of the state council and reshuffle various essential ministries as well. In terms of market implications, the party congress itself will not have uh, any immediate specific policy impacts on the economy. But as she consolidates power and amend, and amend the party constitution with his ideology, what do we call for cautiousness, which demands absolute obedience to see from local officials. The implementation of existing policy mix after the party congress should accelerate notably, especially like supply-side reform, SOE debt restructure, and financial deleveraging. In other words, what we call it, renationalization ranging from industrial production to financial sector will accelerate. That's the key element behind Xi's structural reform and the retaining the party's relevance. 
Moreover, uh, the, consol- the consolidation of Xi's power would reconfirm Beijing's put on growth because doubling GDP by 2020 from its 2010 level is part of Xi's political mandate. That means fiscal expansion as, a, as opposed to monetary easing would be Xi's preferred approach to maintain high growth without backtracking from his reform agendas. Great. I mean, obviously, you touched on their reform agenda quite a bit there, which, which is interesting. And, you know, I think Xi achieved a lot on reform in his first term. Obviously, we've seen a lot of political reform, supply-side reform, and, and the start of the SOE reform program. But I'm interested, I mean, on your point that you expect an acceleration in his second term, what areas specifically are you looking at? Do you think it'll be still in those three key areas and financial reform, or what should we be looking for? You know, before I start, I think one thing worth pointing out is that we really feel reform will accelerate under Xi's second term. Otherwise, it would have been really a waste for President Xi to spend so much political capital, making so many enemies to consolidate his power during his first term. However, something is important here is that Xi's definition for reform is certainly different from the conventional market views and definitions for market reform. In other words, what Xi's really trying to do is to reverse the decentralization trend caused by previous regimes in the name of economic liberalization. That's why we call Xi's reform is renationalization. Under this scheme, the centerpiece is SOE's reform. And anti-corruption campaign is the underpinning part of Xi's political recentralization. So the whole point is that recentralizing all all policy decisions and implementation back to the central party organ directly under President Xi, away from the state council, SOEs, and local governments, will be the most important element of Xi's reform. And that's the definition for Xi's reform. Therefore, Xi's plan for SOE reform is based on debt restructure as well as centralization in production and resources allocation at the upper stream or so-called strategic important areas, not the dilution of control of the party. But SOE debt restructure and consolidation are only the objectives and his success relies on some preconditions. That's why it probably has given the market perception that reform in China has been very slow. These preconditions, for example, including inflation for upper stream sectors and SOE profits while supply side reform, which will be needed to strengthen SOE's balance sheet and attract private funding to finance debt restructure. Financial deleveraging is supposed to reconcentrate financial resources to support SOE debt restructure. Thereby, private sectors and local governments would have to bear the cost. There has been a clear policy sequence here. And the, and the political power consolidation from this party congress is only part of the sequence to ensure no distractions from local politics going forward. So having a policy sequence for all the reform agenda under Xi's mind has been the primary reason for the pace, for the slower pace of SOE reform. But in fact, we think Xi would accelerate SOE deleveraging data restructure after the power transition. Uh, as now he would care less about factional politics after party congress. Having said that, it does not mean China would backtrack from other market liberalizations. 
in, per, in particular RMB and financial sector for two reasons. First, more opening of domestic financial markets is a way to attract foreign investors to help share the cost of debt restructure and recapitalization of SOEs. Second, it would elevate the importance of China at a global geopolitical stage if China's financial market would become a major magnet for foreign capitals and China financial markets would be able to play a greater role in terms of influencing global commodity prices and flow of capital. Fantastic. I mean, they're obviously interesting areas, but I think, you know, one of the bearish angles that some people have said about China is they've been prioritizing short-term economic stabilization at the expense of structural reform. And I guess by more structural reform, I mean policies of boosting consumption, income equality, access to ability to healthcare, some of these more longer-term areas of reform. So I'm interested in your view. Do you think we'll actually get a little bit of a pivot to focus on some of these more longer-term areas of the reform agenda in Xi's second term? Uh, well, certainly, I think President Xi will certainly do. Well, of course, at this point, China will continue to emphasize on short-term growth. But the focus on growth will shift towards more emphasizing on the floor, not the growth sitting. Also, I think Beijing in the past two years has come to a point of reckoning that how to leverage physical spending to maintain growth as opposed to credit creation should be a better policy mix to play with going forward, especially for Xi's second term. For that reason, at least before 2020, short-term growth maintenance is still critical for Chinese leadership. And that implies long-term structural reform will mostly focus on designing policy designs, not implementation at the near term. Also, this long-term structural reforms require changes to to legislations, which take a longer time than making changes to industrial policies or maintaining short-term growth. Moreover, this reform, I think this reform requires substantial redistribution of wealth and resources within the system, not only political, but also uh, economic uh, system, especially from the fiscal part, which will require more political compromise and de- policy deliberation and even, I mean, even increased party uh, factional struggle. Chinese leadership would have to proceed more cautiously, as I suggested, because this reform or this long-term reform or shifting towards a consumption-driven economy are controversial. You know, even within China, within, you know, within the party's leadership, especially there are a lot of conservatives consider potential shift of policy towards that direction will pose a higher risk for the existing pillars of Chinese uh, economic growth drivers. For example, people from middle-income households, industrial lobbyists, and local garments, those political groups will also suffer from China's shift from investment-driven, industrial-driven to uh, consumption-driven growth. So going too fast, uh, on structural reforms would take more risk to the social stability and also will take a much higher risk in terms of uh, can undermining the current social consensus on party politics and even on growth strategies. But still, I, I still think related reforms will accelerate in, uh, in Xi's second term, especially from the, from the physical side. The first thing in the sequence for boosting consumption and reducing income disparity is to 
do a tax system overhaul in China. Those are already in the you know in the policy sequence and pipeline. Beijing has made some progress uh, on that du- uh, on that direction with VAT reform back in 2015, which is supposed to. St- to streamlining tax burdens for service sector, which was good. The next reform in line for uh, for tax overhaul will be an introduction of a property tax. Well, there has a lot been uh, debate and uh, controversies surrounding uh, that reform, but we think property tax is coming for sure. And introduction of property tax will help offset slowdown from local land sales, and it will help redistribute wealth among households as well. In addition to this, more dividend payouts from SOEs and transfer for equity uh, of SOE shares to uh, social security funds and healthcare system will be implemented to help recapitalize China's social safety net. These reforms are all in the pipeline, but like I mentioned, earlier legislation process and concerns with potential risk to social stability will make the progress very gradual. Gotcha. Um, You made some interesting points on growth and obviously, you know, your point is in the second second term, there still will be a commitment to high growth. Um, And and obviously, if I look in Xi's first term and actually for for, for a number of years now, what's really been vital for driving growth has been fiscal policy and fiscal policy has has been very proactive. So it sounds like from what you're saying in your comment, you expect fiscal policy in particular around infrastructure investment to be remain very proactive in Xi's second term. Is, is that correct? And you still think there's that commitment to growth? Yes. Well, you know what? You know what? Think about physical policy in China. It has to be on infrastructure. Of course, you know, over time, they will make the balance a little bit better towards public service, which I will discuss later. But infrastructure uh, investment will continue to be the driver for for uh, expansionary f- physical policy. Also, I think under Xi's, you know, towards the end of uh, the first term of uh, Xi's uh, administration, he has made that even clearer that f- expansionary physical policy will, you know, will be the key driver to maintain the growth floor at least until 2020. So it's not only because central government is considered less levered compared to uh, other sectors of economy like corporate and uh, local governments, but so that central government has more more room for fiscal stimulus, but also because physical policy, especially quasi-physical policy spending, such as policy banks uh, financing, is considered as a tool to lever uh, excessive savings from Chinese households and corporate as well. And previously, Chinese used financial suppression to drive, to direct funding towards infrastructure investments. But now there will be physical policy as a driver. So also the current financial deleveraging is this reform is irreversible from a policy perspective. To be honest, Chinese policymakers has been fed up by this back and forth with financial deleveraging in the past five years. And they have determined since this April that financial deleveraging has to proceed. That means monetary policy, that means there's very little room for monetary policy to ease, at least in the next couple of years. And we think this is a consensus among Chinese policymakers and their policy advisors at this point. So that leaves physical policy as the only option in terms of uh, stabilizing short-term growth. Well, 
At the same time, 6.5% GDP growth remains a positive for, for Beijing, as I mentioned, at least until 2021, when President Xi can deliver his political mandate to double China's GDP. Chinese government at this point, well, surprisingly, still estimate that 6.7% is the potential growth for China, and even above that threshold. So therefore, 6.5% target is not viewed as uh, as a kind of policy overshoot and does not require, and policymakers will say, does not require excessive stimulus from the fiscal part. But fiscal policy remains the the mean, uh, the primary driver for uh, for policymakers to maintain the floor on growth. Okay, I mean you made some interesting points on infrastructure investments, and obviously when I, when I look at recent years, that's predominantly been dominated by transportation infrastructure. Do you think that's going to continue to be the priority in the near term in terms of deep bottlenecks in transportation infrastructure, or do you think there'll be more focus on on other areas like technology infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, you know, alternative energy, things like that? I think investment will continue to focus on infrastructure, uh, but you know, as you mentioned, it will be less on transportation, but more on public utilities and services. Because for Xi's second term, winning the popular votes from the grassroots will be the key, you know, for his uh, for his political legacy and even for the potential uh, scenario for him to stay for the third term. So for the new economy, you know, uh, the government's idea is to lever private funds to finance investment in those areas. Not only is it because investment in new economy is more risky and prone to a higher federal rate, but also the government thinks that its fiscal resources should be more used to areas that can stabilize underlying growth and win political supports from the grassroots. That's why for latest policy initiatives, investment in new economy, like uh, clean energy, we have seen there's a pattern that government at all levels have been joining private sector while public-private partnerships such as various government and private agri-funds to invest in those areas. For those investments, I think Chinese government understands that innovation should be driven by market demand. And less so for uh, you know from the policy uh, design level, you know from the policy level, but the state can certainly work like a private equity to help jumpstart those projects and hope to share future profits, future profits with the private sector. And more importantly, Chinese government is still heavily focused on manufacture. I think this is something has been very much undervalued by the market at this point. And Chinese government, especially since 2014 and 2015, since China produced the uh, the blueprint for manufacture, China manufacture of 2020, you can tell they have now have been more focused on improving manufacturers' efficiency, competitiveness, and the technology. Manufacturing is centered to China's labor market stability and Xi's ambition to continuously raise household income and China's global competitiveness. The Communist Party is also essentially a political organization believe in industrialism. It deviated from that core value in the past decade due to financial liberalizations, but I think under Xi's command, the party is moving back to its core value, which is to focus on manufacturing investment as well. So I think manufacturing investment will likely dominate China's investment in the future, and investment in the new economy 
and from Chinese industrialists' view, is only supposed to help manufacturer to upgrade and become more efficient. So the previous debate that there's this inflection point for China to move towards service sector has gradually come to an end, or has become more muted at this point. Climbing up along the value chain for Chinese manufacturer is a new centerpiece of Xi's economic, economic policy, which includes new energy, you know, like you mentioned, cleaner energy like nuclear uh, power plants, electric cars, but also machinery automation and belt tech. Those are you know the, the new sectors, manufacturing investment the Chinese governments want to do to help upgrade manufacturer bases. Fantastic. Um, you made a, a good point earlier that obviously, from a longer-term perspective, policy needs to focus on contribute uh, continuing side to rebalance the economy towards consumption. And consumption has been incredibly robust in China over the last five years. And I think obviously a big driver of that has been income growth, urbanisation, obviously as well. But I think uh, probably an underappreciated part of it has been technological innovation, in particular in payments. But I'm interested in your view from a policy perspective. What do you think they can target? in terms of consumption policy uh, structurally going forward to help lower savings and continue to drive consumption. Yeah, I agree with you that con- consumption growth has been uh, has been increasingly become more important for, for China's growth. It also has been uh, becoming more important in terms of policy uh, deliberation in China. New technology, you know, such as mobile payments, e-commerce, has greatly reduced transaction costs for consumers. It has also formalized part of a Chinese great and informal economy, such as, you know, for example, street vendors and informal private service providers, which has made it possible for government to capture them, you know, official consumption numbers and uh, statistics and even in the future for government to be able to levy some tax on those transactions. And that's that's probably partly contribute to your comment that consumption growth appeared had to be incredibly robust for China in the past five years. I think this is also part of the reason. But in the short term, boosting consumption simply involves three things in China. First, reduce income disparity. Second, reform tax code. Third, to lower property property prices. For the first factor, reducing income disparity, I think President Xi has made it very clear that poverty reduction will be one of his signature policy under his second term, which requires more transfer transfer payments and recapitalization of social social security funds. Also, it would include allowing social, social security funds to allocate more into higher yield a little bit riskier investment products such as equity markets and corporate bonds. But for tax reform, one reason that consumption has been undervalued in China is because the current tax code system in China and even land policies only kind of encourage infrastructure and manufacturing investment but discourage consumer spending. For instance, Chinese only tax transactions of goods but do not tax existing stock of properties or very light on capital gains and financial transactions. It basically a state-sponsored or subsidized transfer of wealth from households to manufacture and local garments. And that has been uh, why China has been grow- growing so fast and so heavily on investment and local garment spending. And this will have to change 
starting with VAT reform, like we mentioned earlier, and the introduction of property tax probably in early 2019. The next step will be a reform of individual income tax, which would allow more deductibles on household spending, such as rental and family expenses and child cares. Income tax reform will be discussed at next next year's People's Congress in March. But of course, the final resolution or legislation probably would only get approved in 2019 as well. So 2019 will be a big year for China to watch in terms of progress on fiscal and tax reform. So finally, taming property price increase with, you know, regardless will be administrative measures such as purchase restrictions or supply or more supply for rental properties. Uh, this certainly will be another legacy of Xi's second term. You know, we have seen local governments have been responding uh, proactively to Xi's recent call for increasing supply of rental properties around key cities and uh, directing more household savings from bank deposits to equity bond investment through institutional investors would be also a policy priority for Xi under his second term in terms of uh, reducing household saving and increasing their uh, disposable income you know, from financial gains so that to encourage household to be able to spend more in the future. But in the long term, we think we'll still rely on steady steady economic growth if you translate into a, a market term, which means a hot, relatively fast government-targeted GDP growth. Because the Chinese policymakers believe the most important thing to improve Chinese household consumption is to make sure that you can provide steady increase of their disposable income in the in the long run, and which will be determined by whether or not they'll be successfully to maintain a relatively higher GDP growth. And that's why we expect President Xi will emphasize the need for higher GDP growth after the party Congress, which is kind of contrary to the party, uh, to, you know, to the market consensus, I think. And President Xi will also emphasize on revitalizing Chinese manufacture after the party Congress, because he believes Chinese manufacturer actually provide jobs for lower income families and also upgrading of manufacturer. Those, are, those will be the key for China to be able to, uh, what do you say, to avoid the trap for middle income uh, countries. So manufacturer will be the key for policymakers to achieve that incremental increase of economic and wage growth in the long term. Gotcha. Can we maybe pivot to the risks? An obvious question from international investors has always been around debt levels, and mm-hmm. obviously high growth has corresponded with a big build-up in debt, in particular in the corporate sector. Sure. So I'm interested in your view on, on specific policy measures around debt mitigation and how you think that would play out, which you obviously mentioned some of them earlier, but if we could go into some more detail on that, please. You know, before we start on, on any policy solutions for China's debt, one thing is important to point out that, making no mistake, that level in China remains very high and it's still rising you know, among corporate based on all the risks and credit data. But so far we think Beijing, Beijing's plan actually involves three things. For new and, and incremental debts, it wants to keep the economic growth high enough so that it can gradually grow out debts. 
So that's why you know maintaining a relatively high GDP growth will remain a party and political mandate, not only for the state council but also for for President Xi. For existing stock of debts, first. It would involve transfer of leverage and debts from corporate and local governments to the central government and households. We have seen President Xi had made several attempts and uh, some progress on that front in the past few years. And the remaining debts, which cannot be shifted within the system, has to be dealt with restructure and write-offs. But that restructure would be more focused on SOEs and local government only. Private sectors is not really part of the equation for presidency or the party. For local government debts, Beijing has resumed those debts on their own balance sheet through bond swap programs uh, since uh, 2015. And we had a, we also had a big bond swap for 2016. Uh, for SOE debts, will be more financed jointly by the state and private sector and, and along the supply chain, which will incentivize private participation and at the same time strengthen the bargaining position for SOEs during the process of debt restructure. Gotcha. I mean, specifically on that, I mean, if we look at the, the corporate debt and the SOE proportion of corporate debt, as you mentioned, as being mm-hmm. significant, if I look back at the last cycle in 1999 to 2004, obviously two of the key areas in which they, they looked to sort out debt was via debt-to-equity swaps, I guess, firstly, and then secondly, using the central asset management companies, they created four, obviously. Mm-hmm. Do you think these are going to be two pillars of, of the next way of specifically addressing SOE corporate debt? Yes, I think those policies will, will repeat in this cycle, but there'll be a little bit difference. First of all, there'll be no large write-offs, at least you know, based on our conversation with the policymakers in China is that they're, at least they're not prepared to do a big write-off in the short term. But also, there's something you have to bear in mind that what makes this cycle different you know, from the ones you mentioned back to the 90s that there was no vibrant private household sectors back in, back in the 90s uh, for the Chinese central government to shift those deaths, SOE's deaths or local government deaths to, the, you know, to private and household sectors. Pretty much as a result, the state had, had to finance those deaths on their own with fiscal money and a higher government deficit back in, in the 1990s. But that situation apparently has changed since the 1990s because now we have a pretty vibrant private sector and households who are actually sitting on very high level of deposits and savings. And Beijing wants to tap into those resources under this cycle. Beijing wants private sector to share more costs of debt restructure for SOEs. And has proved, I mean, that plan has proved workable in the recent China Unicom case. Second, local governments, after many years of uh, you know, receiving windfalls from land sales and a huge amount of uh, local revenue increases, would be also able to participate in AgriSwap. Therefore, now we have over 50 local MCs in competing with the central four MCs, you know, as we mentioned earlier. So now, so the point is that different than 
1999's debt restructure. Now we have private firms coming into the picture, and we have local garments with local MCs to come in to compete with the central garment as well. And third, SOE cross-shareholding has also become a very popular strategy for Beijing to adopt in this uh, debt restructure cycle. This is pretty much based on the belief that debt probably in China, in China this time, it has been distributed very unevenly among SOEs compared to previous episodes. Better SOEs in partner with the local governments, private firms, and even households can help to finance debt restructure and equity swap for SOEs in trouble. In this case, SASIC has been the main facilitator for this scheme. And banks are also better better capitalized under this cycle compared to 1999s. Of course, there has been different views on that, but at least from the Chinese policymakers' view, you know, back in 1999, non-performing loans ratio has been around 30% to 40%, but at this point, you know, there's really just a, has been edging up a bit, but by this point, it's still around uh, 1.8%. So from the Chinese policymakers' views that there's no need for large recapitalization for banks, you know, we, you know, well, we think situation will change over time, but that's what their baseline scenario at this point. But more importantly, the Chinese think banks now be in better position in terms of raising capital from offside and retail investors. Back in, in the 1990s, which also make this time look very different from, you know, from old times, that all banks in the 90s were owned solely by the Ministry of Finance and had no access to external cap- capitals. And therefore, Beijing believes that banks need to take some haircuts because now banks has better access to uh, capital markets, to retail investors, and even for foreign investors. So that's why Beijing feel like banks have the resources to help share the burden of debt restructure by participating in equity swap and loan write-offs. Well, at last, legal framework for debt restructure and bankruptcy in China is actually in, in existence compared to the episodes in the 1990s. Therefore, we have, you know, we have heard discussions from uh, CBRC officials that you know, most of the local debt restructure should be left to local creditor committees and courts. I mean, that's a progress for, for China for sure. In a nutshell, I think the central government does not want to take the burden for debt restructure on its own shoulder this time. and prefers those debts will be redistributed among other sectors and other players within, within the economy, especially uh, for private sectors. What the central government sees is role during this process, I mean, this particular debt restructure cycle as to only coordinate policies and keep the reflationary pressures on so that restructure can take place under a reflationary cycle, not a disinflation cycle. Therefore, they can minimize the costs and impacts on growth from debt restructure. Gotcha. I think there's a, a, a perception internationally, certainly, that you can't successfully push forward to deleveraging and keep growth high. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, historically, obviously, China was successful at doing that back in '99. But we had the, the tailwinds of WTO. We also had urban land reform and whatnot. So, but you know, it, it sounds like from what you said earlier, with a, a really push forward with more structural reforms and a focus on investment, you believe that they can simultaneously maintain fairly high growth while. Whilst making 
progress on deleveraging at the same time. Is that accurate? Well, this is a challenge for sure. Uh, I think for for any economist, uh, there has not been a perfect uh, remedy. That's at the same time you can do deleveraging, but at the same time you can maintain your your growth rate. I think for for that reason, Chinese Chinese policymakers have come to a consensus or kind of just realizations that you know they have to take a slower growth if they truly want to do a major debt restructure. But like I mentioned, you know even if they're talking about uh, tolerance for slower growth, but it has been very the growth floor they have. Uh, will still be around six half percent, which you know, compared to other economists, will be a very high threshold. But that's you know, that's the reality. That is the reality for China because for Chinese policymakers, their higher growth for them not only means a labor market stabilization, but it also means that you know you need that rate of growth to help SOEs to grow up debts so that they can pay the debts they have accumulated in the past decade. When we talk about all these challenges, I think it has pretty much boiled down to only one option for Chinese policymakers, which is fiscal expansion. Supply side reform, mainly through reflationary reflationary facts, is only supposed to drive manufacturing restocking and front-loaded investment and spending to offset slowdown from production side. But fiscal expansion, that's where it will provide the marginal and incremental increase to, uh, you know, to GDP growth. So in the meantime, I think China has to rely on exports and external demand recovery. Chinese policymakers have have been surprised by the strong rebound of, of external demand so far this year. But of course, there has been debate and some kind of uncertainty about how, how sustainable this global recovery will last. Uh, but of course, that will be another topic for, for another day. But the Chinese, you know, wouldn't make the Chinese growth story not so different from the past decades that really if China want to be able to maintain the growth at the same time to be successfully deleveraging, it has to rely on domestic fiscal stimulus. It has to to rely on domestic reflationary policy. And more importantly, it has to rely on the mercy of the pace of global demand recovery and and growth recovery. And that has very significant policy implications for China domestically, which means, you know, contrary to uh, market consensus, what a lot of people thinks, I think China will have to further open its domestic market for foreign investment. And we think that'll be the center of the discussion between President Xi and President Trump for this uh, upcoming November uh, state visit for Trump to Beijing. In other words, whether or not China can successfully grow out the debts with the limited impacts to growth prospect will remain on external demand and trade. And, you know, as I mentioned, there's no difference for China, you know, at this point uh, or on on this particular topic compared to the previous uh, debt cycle China has experienced in the past. Kind of just give you a little bit kind of latest update on policy front for, for, for more opening up from China. 
uh, Prime Minister Lee and PBOC and, CB, and CBRC official have recently kind of prepared the markets for potential large, you know, potential concession from China to the U.S. at this upcoming state visit from President Trump for relaxing capital restrictions on foreign investors for China for Chinese financial uh, markets and also relax uh, restrictions on on forced uh, technology transfer for foreign business uh, in China. Also, further opening of Chinese capital accounts will likely resume very soon, despite as uh, as a gradual pace. For example, the proposed launch of a Shanghai crude oil exchange is reportedly you know will include terms or clauses to remove capital controls on remittance of foreign investors' profits. But of course, the opening will be only confined to limited areas under constant regulatory uh, scrutiny. Regardless, I think what's more important for uh, for China to uh, to be successfully pulling off a debt restructure at the same time maintaining a relatively uh, fast growth is for the government to provide a bull equity market and a steady interest rate environment. Uh, because those are the key for SOEs to be able to refinance their debts. And also that's the key for the policymakers to attract retail investors and private investors to help share the burden of debt restructure. Fantastic. My last question is, I guess, more of a conceptual one in the way that, you know, we discussed earlier the economic impulse that China's got out of technological innovation in driving consumption or helping to drive consumption. I'm interested in your view on targeted areas of technology innovation and how they can promote that, specifically as you're an economist and a very good one, Mm -hmm. how that can be used to drive productivity, because that is, I guess, another area that they can help drive growth more structurally going forward. Sure. I think China actually has developed a workable model to draft technological applications. Uh, but again, something I have to point out first is that China is not a pioneer in technology innovation. Uh, not for now, not for the near future, but China will remain a front runner for applying existing technologies to old economies at very large scale and scale that we've never seen you know, in the uh, you know, in the world. That partly explains why new innovations from the West have been so quickly proliferated in China because China does, does enjoy the advantage of scale of economy where, where it comes to take the risk of applying those technologies and lowering the cost of production. This is also the so-called home market advantage because the domestic market is so large for China that new firms can duplicate and apply uh, those technologies from the West at much lower costs. And in addition, the proliferation of new technology in China is also based on a good public-private partnership. That's that's the the uh, the work mod the workable model that I think has been helping China to climbing up the supply chain and uh, to actually to move forward on technology innovation. For instance, you know, in the mobile payment and e-commerce case, local governments have been providing infrastructure such, such as internet connections, stable power grids, and well-paved roads infrastructures. And high-tech companies can cut off a lot of off-farm investments 
and overall has, so that they can just focus on marketing and operations, operations and applying those technologies and you know to uh, to existing uh, business models. So in this case, both central and local governments have been sending positive incentives for new startups and private sectors and to encourage them to adopt new technologies. Also, something interesting here is that lacks regulation in China. Sometimes there's a lack of regulations. Also play a role uh, for China in terms of uh, moving ahead with innovation, especially compared to more mature economies and advanced economies. For instance, you know, unlike developing countries, for new economy, there are no existing government regulations and no old establishments or interest groups to keep the entry barriers high for private uh, uh, firms in China, so which in turn provide uh, implicit subsidies for high-tech companies in China to thrive. So in the meantime, as China is losing its cheap labor competitiveness to uh, its surrounding countries, the mass manufacturer would have to adopt new technology, would have to increase their productivity so that they can continue to lower their cost, to expand their market shares, and continue to remain competitive compared to other economies. A financial liberalization also has helped direct household deposits to wealth management products and private equities, which partly provide abundant funding and resources for new startups in China. All of this institutional supports, setups, as some are by design, some are not by design, and home market advantage will remain relevant for China in the future in terms of a cl- climbing up the global supply chain. The economic implications, I think, are benign inflation, higher productivity from service sectors and manufacturer, sec- manufacturer sectors in China, and lower transaction costs for global trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in so in that case, I think China will continue to drive this global trade. It will also bring more capital inflows and risk investment to China, which will be supportive for the RMB exchange rate in the long term. We'll also argue for more Chinese outbound investment to foreign high-tech companies. So here's something interesting that, you know, in the past few years, Chinese outbound investment has been mainly driven by private sectors, uh, highly concentrated in property markets and commodities. So we think that will change, not really in the long term, but probably even in the near future, that there'll be more state-driven outbound investment on high-tech companies. Of course, I mean, the risk for that Chinese, for Chinese strategies that they will have to face stiff resistance, a lot of suspicions from other countries, uh, state regulations. But I think something else we have to uh, bear in mind is that under C second term, we're gonna see a very a brand new state sponsorship to drive Chinese innovation and to drive the uh, the adoption of new technology in China. And this new scheme will be called military and civil integration. And this has been one of the President Xi's Alexis that he wanted to leave behind. This scheme supposed to open up the previously 
most closed and most secret defense sector in China to private business. And that's supposed to further encourage adoption and proliferation of new tech technology between the state and private sectors in China. But of course, the risk for all these Chinese innovation stories and all the potential is this growing global trade protectionism. And the existing embargo on technology transfer from the West on China. Song, fantastic. Incredibly insightful as always. Thank you very much for your time. Sure. It's my pleasure. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured and may not reflect those of Foresight Bar Limited or Foresight Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Foresight Bar or Foresight Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast. 